Welcome back. Welcome back. <laughs> Welcome to episode two of Cut Through Nutrition. This is a uh, a direct follow-on to mm-hmm. episode one of Cut Through Nutrition. I'm just going to keep saying Cut Through Nutrition. It's quite yeah, fun. It's catchy. CTN. CTN. So yeah, welcome to episode two. Uh, episode one, we talked a lot about um, whether food was medicine. And uh, we are both of the opinion that food mm-hmm. as medicine is harmful rhetoric. And uh, we should stop using it. Mm. Um, and we're going to take it a little bit further today and explain why... Um, being able to analyze biomedical research isn't a transferable skill mm-hmm. that I personally thought was. Mm-hmm. And I personally fell into the trap of thinking that I know how to analyze um, medical research. And so I should be able to analyze nutritional Turn research. Your nutrition. Yeah, yeah. And I, I see a lot of fellow doctors um, uh, having that belief that it's a transferable skill. Yeah. Uh, and that leading to. Um, it propagating the food as medicine yes. rhetoric because uh, because if you read nutritional science research in the same way as biomedical science research, and correct me if I'm wrong, it leads you to the theory that food might be medicine. Well, if you read mechanistic in vitro studies and animal models, yes. <laughs> Which, when you really scrutinize the populist food is medicine, quote-unquote, advocates from the medical sphere, you realize that that is basically the genesis for all of their statements. Yeah, fine. And 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 I would argue that's why, even though I didn't realize it wasn't transferable, I still came to the conclusion by myself that food as medicine is not a, is not helpful, yeah. um, despite the fact of not. So this, my understanding of the fact it's not transferable has come later. Mm-hmm. So it's definitely possible to come to an understanding yeah, that food as medicine yeah. is a bad Hopefully. thing <laughs> without having without having this knowledge. However, yes. this knowledge is very helpful. And no, so I, I, I would so. love you to explain to us um, uh, with some questions from my side, hopefully, mm-hmm. as to why there is a difference, yeah. why it's not a transferable skill. Yeah. So I guess the first point of departure is just a basic reminder. Nutrition is a science. So I think we're... It's its own science. It's its own science. It's a standalone field. Like the field of psychiatry has the biopsychosocial model and that evolved out of the biomedical model. And if you read... The, and it's it's an interesting piece in the context of this discussion, but George Engel, who is the godfather of the biopsychosocial model wrote a seminal paper in the 70s about why the biomedical model was not fit for purpose for that particular field, for investigating conditions of the mind. And so we had this evolution out of that. We we need the same, and and it is happening. We're we're in the currency of this process now of people within nutrition publishing and, and, and openly talking about, hey, there's fundamental differences between the subject of inquiry of the medical model, which is drugs and surgeries, versus the subject of inquiry for food, which is nutrients. But we build that up. It's not just a food. It's the composite of nutrients and other bioactive components in that food. It's then, does that food exist in the context of a wider diet pattern? And all of these variables that make it a little more problematic to tease out the effects of any given one part of that. Mm -hmm. So at the most basic level... There are fundamental differences between the subjects of inquiry that make the biomedical model not useless, but somewhat an awkward fit for investigating diet disease relationships. It leads to a 
Um, overly reductionist. Exactly. It leads mm-hmm. to an overly reductionist view of nutrition and also leads to a misinterpretation. Yes. It doesn't lead to a complete, like, I have no idea what's no, going on. No, but not you, at all. It, there's a tendency to overinterpret things mm-hmm. based on or the misinterpret. Way. Yeah, or yeah. misinterpret. Yeah. So, so for me, um, as somebody who has learned to read biomedical papers, um, I have been taught multiple times that there is a hierarchy of evidence yes when it comes to um studies mm-hmm. uh, and we're talking biomedical studies here but for me it was just studies yeah um and there's a hierarchy of evidence going all the way from just anecdotal mm-hmm. um all the way up to uh systematic reviews and mm-hmm. meta-analysis yeah along the way you you come across randomized controlled trials mm-hmm. which if they're double-blinded placebo controlled mm-hmm. all of that you you look Beautiful. for the gold standards of yeah how you analyze drugs mm-hmm. um, and how you work out whether drugs are better than placebo. Yes. Um, and then if you have lots of those uh, randomized controlled trials, you're mm-hmm. then able to create a systematic review. And there's mm-hmm. the whole reason why, uh, I hope I'm saying this right, the Cochrane Review. Is, that, mm-hmm. is it Cochrane or Cochrane? Yeah, because it sounds kind of Irish, I think it? Yeah, I think it's Cochrane Review. <laughs> but it's about but there's as, a reason why... For the most part, it's about as useful for nutrition as a shit flavored lollipop well that's what that and that's why you're here so yeah. it there, there's a reason why from a biomedical perspective that's what i look for as a mm-hmm. doctor when i come across things if there's a new um if there's a new uh surgical procedure or mm-hmm. if there's a new drug that i'm going to mm-hmm. use for pain or there are some very good models that i can use and that we as scientists medical scientists can mm-hmm. use to to analyze these things yeah why can't so what's the difference okay. here? Why can't that just go straight? Why can't I take immediately transfer? Yeah, why yeah. can't I take celery or the compounds in <laughs> yeah. celery and test it against um, eczema and mm-hmm. and come to a conclusion, yeah. a, a, a solid conclusion as to whether yeah. or not celery cures eczema? Yeah. Why can't I just do lots of randomized controlled trials, get a systematic review, and then have it done and, and then, done for yeah, all and give the medical medium my money? That informs clinical practice. Yeah, why why not? Okay. So let's, I think the, the, the first place to start is the RCT, because okay. the RCT is obviously superior to a population-based study, but it's also then in the biomedical context, the RCT is the desired study design that is incorporated then into a meta-analysis to come to a confident conclusion on efficacy. And just because we're hoping that there are people who aren't healthcare professionals or scientists listening as well, oh, right, yeah. just a brief RCT itself? Randomized control trial. Okay. So... This is very much a, a birth trial a child of the biomedical model in terms of the strictures of its approach. And the gold standard is randomized, meaning that the subjects in the trial are either assigned to a placebo or the intervention in a random fashion. So not just there's 12 people, let's go the way you'd pick football teams, right? First person, second person, first person, second person, that kind of thing. It's placebo controlled, meaning that the intervention, let's say we're talking about a drug, is compared to a complete non-entity. So it's just a powder of flour or something that has no impact. And in the same uh, method and, of and in the same method of administration, so and you tablet, can't tell the a, difference between the yeah. two. And it is controlled in terms of other variables that might influence the outcome. So let's say that we're talking about a trial for a blood pressure medication. Things like salt or anything that could influence that outcome of blood pressure are going to be controlled for. So that when the conclusions of the trial are in, 
we can be really confident that if blood pressure came down, we can, one, see whether it came down and by how much it came down compared to no intervention, the placebo. And then we can also be confident that the only cause of blood pressure coming down was that particular intervention, i.e. the drug. Hmm. So that model is based on three what are known as presuppositions for what for what is known as internal validity. And that is internal validity in a research sense means minimizing the chance that the results occurred from bias or from other reasons confounding. Mm-hmm. So those th- the three primary presuppositions that the randomized control model are based on in the biomedical model is uniformity in the subgroup. So the population you study are all relatively uniform. Mm. So that's really easy to define if it's a drug. So we could be talking about people with our blood pressure example that have blood pressure over, for example, 140 over yeah. 90. Because there's no point testing. And the they have all of those. Exactly. With variable blood pressures exactly. because it may work for a, a certain type of blood pressure, a certain yeah. level, but not for another. Exactly. So they're uniform with that presentation. They all have the same rough level of blood pressure. And that means that, again, if blood pressure comes down by 50 mercury millimolars, then we can be pretty confident that that is going to be consistent in people who present with that indication. The second presupposition is that there is a independent effect. And that's where we get to the placebo versus the intervention. And also we get to controlling for other factors that could influence the outcome. What that means is that in the results of that trial, we can be completely certain that the only thing that had the effect was the drug, was the intervention. So independence of effects. And then the third one is a clearly defined intervention and a clearly defined placebo. Okay, so now that you know that, why does that not neatly translate to food? Well, one, in terms of uniformity, it's very difficult to achieve that because everyone comes in with a different baseline diet. So for years, for example, a confounder that was in a lot of the bone health research was people just had different vitamin D baseline statuses. Mm. So obviously we understand that now we can control for that. But you don't know what everyone's baseline nutrient status is in, in a given trial. You don't know how their underlying uh, you know, health conditions may affect that. And also because diet interventions are behavioral, you don't always have a uniform group through the through the intervention so let's say it's 12 weeks long diet's going to change the balance unless you control for every single variable you don't have uniformity guaranteed in that group so that minimizes the validity of the results which is why the best the best ones that are controlled as much as possible tend to be quite tend short to be very right? short because exactly you can't keep someone locked up in a no. in a chamber no. for two years two because years. that you know as much as you might yeah. might want them for two years that that just wouldn't, it's not going to happen yeah. and that's a great point the the tighter the control in nutrition the shorter the study basically mm. and then the second one Ironically. independence of effects yeah independence of effect is very difficult to guarantee with diet because d- diets and foods are what we nutrients are what we call polyvalent right they have multiple structural elements And they also, so any given food is polyvalent because it has macronutrients in it, proteins, carbohydrates, fats. It has micronutrients in it, vitamin A, for example, vitamin D, vitamin C, whatever. 
And then it also has other components of the food matrix that have biological activity but are not nutrients. So there's three levels of compounds in there, none of which you can control Such as all what? what are you talking about in that last? Bioactive food components. So, yeah. for example, polyphenols okay. are a group of compounds. So if you look they at... They don't come under micronutrients? Blueberries, or? no, no, right. because we don't need them for nutritional status. I see what you mean, okay. Fine. So they are not required for life. They're not required for lifespan necessarily, but they are having positive influences on health through right. interactions with signaling pathways and stuff like that. You can't control for all of them. And then the last one then, a clearly defined intervention in placebo. Here's the thing. There is simply no such thing as a nutrient-free state. There is no placebo for food. Hmm. Unless you're comparing a nutrition intervention to someone who's fasted and hasn't eaten for three days. <laughs> but that comes with it, its own confounding. Exactly. <laughs> so there's no nutrient-free state. So this isn't to say that RCTs cannot be done well in a nutrition context. Mm. They can, but generally what we need to do is be more, uh, there's a, a spectrum. People also assume that the biomedical RCT is the only RCT, but actually randomized control trials exist on a spectrum from explanatory so biomedical rcts are explanatory rcts because they are trying to explain whether this intervention this surgical intervention is better intervention a better than intervention b or whether drug a is better than drug b or whether drug a is better than placebo so it's explaining an outcome Mm. But we also have pragmatic RCTs, which are employed a lot more in the biopsychosocial model and, and, and social sciences, where the results may not have the rigor of a biomedical RCT, but have much more applicability in the real world. And that's kind of where we need to get to, to with nutrition. So biomedical purists hate nutrition science because to them it's just violating all of these <laughs> principles. But actually... It's not the principles. To, to say that it's violating these principles and not adapt the model to the subject of inquiry is dogma. What we do in anything with science is we evolve the model to serve the subject of inquiry. And that's where we're at with nutrition now. And that's where most of the commentators are, are, uh, are, are recommending that we don't impose that stricture on nutrition. So that was all very wordy and weighty. So let's just put this into an example for listeners. Let's stick with our blood pressure medication example. We have an RCT in this blood pressure medication. The first thing is the medication, which I've been told, I was calling them ACE inhibitors. That's my lack of medical <laughs> knowledge. I've been told ACE. that they are ACE inhibitors. ACE inhibitors. So ACE inhibitor, that acts on the ACE enzyme. And it only does that. It has been designed to have a specific action it's not going to randomly go off and act on HMG-CoA reductase the way a statin does. It's not going to do that. We know how it'll behave. Yep. The R, the R, the we RCTs, know how much gets absorbed based know, on its exactly. method of administration. Yep. We know how much of it is bioactive, yep. is bioavailable. Yep. And that doesn't change very much mm -hmm. um, with people's overall health it doesn't change mm -hmm. very much with people's microbiome mm -hmm. in general that's quite well exactly controlled for how long well it will be right? in circulation yeah. how quickly it will be eliminated and how strong and pronounced the effects would be because also nobody has ace inhibitors in their system or well I mean, yeah. it gets it gets <laughs> nuanced but nobody has that same substance in their system already, right. which is a valid point for things exactly. like nutrition, where yeah. you, you can't say it's only going to be in the system for so long mm -hmm. because that will vary depending on how yeah. much they already have. Yes, exactly. At that particular moment in time. Exactly. Anyway, and they're going to have... No, but that's a really good point because this is going to go into their system. 
they're going to have a blood pressure of over 140, for example. And this is going to have such a pronounced effect that it's going to act outside of biological range and reduce their blood pressure to what we consider normal, for Mm. example. The study population is going to be the same. The drug administered is going to be the same. If and it's the, a good RCT. If it's a good RCT. Yeah. And, and, the effect, and, and if it's good, this will be replicated over and over multiple times in the same population lo- using similar doses, similar trial duration. Because the effect is so big, we can be really confident that the result isn't random. And then you get all of these trials... And that's when a meta-analysis is incredibly useful for informing medical practice. Because these trials are all so similar that you can incorporate them into a meta-analysis and you're not not subject to the influence of really outlier studies. So you come to a very confident conclusion on the efficacy of that drug and that informs clinical practice. So why doesn't that translate for nutrition? Meta-analyses in nutrition have have become a bit of a tool for misuse. And part of the reason is because you might have trials that nominally are in the same nutrient, for example, omega-3, but they might be in a different population subgroup. They might use different doses. They might have different baseline levels of intake. They might use different formulations of EPA to DHA, for example. All of these variables, you combine them into a meta-analysis on the kind of trust that you're going to get a confident conclusion that's not what you get at all you get an absolute hodgepodge mixed together and you get a weak or null association this has been particularly so with epidemiology uh, with nutrition science which is also a completely different ball game because you're analyzing different populations with different levels of intake so meta-analysis is great in the biomedical model when the trials included are all roughly the same but most, a lot of, certainly, nutrition RCTs even fail those basic presuppositions. So it means that the conclusions don't have great external or internal validity. Mm. And interestingly, the meta-analyses that are done mm-hmm. tend not to be done by nutritional science researchers. No. <laughs> Which is interesting, no, right? Like it is it's, interesting. You know, and, the and, the, the, the yeah. nutritional science researchers are doing the original yeah. randomized controlled trials as best as they can. Yeah. Or the and then they're leaving it as mm. at that. Mm-hmm. And then a doctor comes along, yeah. a biomedically trained mm-hmm. scientist comes along and goes, you know what, we'll make a great publication. Yeah. I'm going to create a meta-analysis of all of these studies and I'm going to come to a conclusion. Mm-hmm. And that's what that, that's why I started this conversation by saying that the, mis, the, the lack of understanding mm-hmm. about the transferability of that skill mm-hmm. is leading to a, an encouragement of the food is medicine rhetoric because you can get a... Uh, a result that may encourage you to think that this particular compound in this particular food could be used in a medical setting. Yeah. But the reason you're coming to that conclusion a lot of the times is because a meta-analysis that shows that is being Mm -hmm. done when it shouldn't be done and it's being done by people that don't understand the reasons why it shouldn't be done. Yeah. And it's it's like, and that, that's something I never, I had no clue about. That's not, that's not something we get to. There are a few levels that we can really tease that out on. The the first is the over-reliance on, so because, come back to this example we used of the ACE inhibitor, right? That has a really specific mechanism of action Hmm. and that mechanism equals effect. So when that enzyme is inhibited, blood pressure comes down. 
And I think a lot of doctors start reading nutrition research and they presume that mechanism equals effect and it doesn't. And for example, research on micronutrients or research on these bioactive food components, often in animal models or cell culture studies. So mm. I'll take an example of resveratrol, right? Because we're drinking red wine as we record this. So Shh, don't tell anyone that. Sorry. <laughs> resveratrol became a really interesting research compound. And you look at it and you put resveratrol in a cell culture study and you have this massive anti-carcinogenic effect inhibiting tumor growth and all of these mechanisms that you can look at. Mm. So that looks like mechanism equals effect. But actually, then you have to step back and extrapolate it back to diet. Where does this and what food sources does it come through? And when we get to that point, then you realize that actually that applicability goes out the window because it would correspond to around 24 bottles of red wine. <laughs> Which so, is fine if you want to drink that many and, yeah, and cure and some survive. sort of, then, yeah. you know. You'll die of alcohol day. poisoning. You may have inhibition of tumors. <laughs> so <laughs> we see this a lot. We see this with the, the recent obsession with turmeric a lot as well, you know, where we're looking at mechanistic studies that are able to circumvent the lack of bioavailability. So with any nutrient or component in food, you have to think about, similar enough to a drug in terms of its pharma, pharmacokinetics, think about its absorption. How well is it absorbed? Is its absorption affected by other factors in the diet? Um, is there competitive transport, uh, competitive inhibition for transport? And all of these factors... And I feel like there's an emphasis on, well, this nutrient has been shown to do this thing mm. in, in, a, in an animal model or in a, in a, in a cell culture study. Therefore, where that nutrient... Or, or even in a human model, but or even with in, humongously high doses. Really high doses as an isolated supplement. And actually, interestingly, that's why so many are, people have a lack of faith now in nutrition science because the biomedical model and its reductionist emphasis meant that when we thought a nutrient was beneficial for health, we isolated it out of the context of when it is and how it is consumed in a diet, encapsulated it as a supplement, gave it to people and assumed that it would have the same effect as a supplement. And it just isn't. And a great example I use for this is vitamin E. So we have Consistent epidemiology that dietary vitamin E intake is associated with lower risk of heart disease and lower risk of de dementia and Alzheimer's. And then we can look at mechanistic work to why that may be. And we know that vitamin E is highly concentrated or that the tocopherols and toc tocotrienols are really highly concentrated in, in cholesterol and act uh, to protect LDL against oxidation. So that's potentially one mechanism mm. in cardiovascular disease. We know that cholesterol oxidation may be potentially implicated in neurodegenerative disease. So there, there are these mechanistic underpinnings. So from a doctor perspective, right. we go, okay, so that's doing all of these positive things. So let's just give vitamin E. Exactly. Because that works from a drug perspective. Exactly. And we did that in multiple, large scale, really expensive RCTs. But here's the thing. Vitamin E in diet is composed of eight different isomers. We know a lot about one alpha tocopherol. We know a little bit about gamma tocopherol. But here's where nutrition gets even more interesting. When you do brain autopsies of patients with dementia or Alzheimer's versus healthy controls, the isomer of vitamin E that's highest concentrated in brain tissue and therefore potentially associated with protection is gamma tocopherol 
but we don't really know that much about it. <laughs> and as for the other six, we know fuck all. So we have this nutrient nominally, but we don't really know a lot about its, its, its overall action and how it might act together when it's consumed in the context of a diet. Mm. And so what happened with these trials was they isolated mostly alpha tocopherol, this one isomer of eight, gave it in supplement form and found nothing. Now, in the, bio, in the strictest sense of the biomedical model, the conclusion, therefore, from these RCTs is that this nutrient has no impact on health outcomes. Of course, that's a farcical proposition from a logical perspective because that's not the hypothesis that was tested. It's a type 3 error. That's the, the hypothesis tested was an isolated synthetic version of this nutrient, which is more complex than the supplemental form, protects against cardiovascular disease, for example. So the RCT model doesn't fit particularly neatly. And when, when meta-analyses are done with really divergent RCTs, we, we get really weak results. But also in epidemiology. So in nutritional epidemiology, it's important to note that if we're comparing, because there's no nutrient-free state, we don't compare the exposure to no exposure because we can't. So we typically compare high versus low exposures in nutrition science. So let's take saturated fat, for example. Well, hang on, just going back for one second to, yeah. that, to that isomer example. So I think it's interesting because as doctors, we're, we're aware of this isomer example. Mm-hmm. One perfect one is a drug called thalidomide. Right. That was oh, yeah, used. Yeah. So yeah. it was used as an anti-emetic, so an anti-sickness drug in pregnant women at right. one point. And it seemed to work incredibly well. Mm. And then we realized that it started, it was causing birth defects. Mm-hmm. And we realized or we found out that the reason it was causing birth defects is because there were two isomers of the drug. Right. So they looked for, for people that aren't, aren't medical. So an isomer is um, an identical compound when you, when you kind of look at where the atoms are sitting, but it's the mirror image essentially, Mm. or that's one way of looking at Mm -hmm. it. So this drug had two isomers that were mirror images of each other. One version of the drug, well, both versions of the drug were brilliant at being anti-emetic, stopping, Mm. stopping vomiting, but one version of the drug caused all these birth defects. Mm. And so we, we therefore stopped giving it Mm. thalidomide. So, but the problem is, is that with food or the way that I'm seeing a lot of this stuff is, is that where's the harm? So, so it doesn't matter whether we're wrong about this kind of stuff, whether this, uh, all of this stuff that we know is good science, Mm. but we're willing to overlook when it comes to food. Yeah, exactly. I feel, I don't know. Well, no, you're right because there's a level of rigor that we want to have. And it's not that we can't have rigor with nutrition science. We can. And it's, it's, it's why I'm quite vocal about these differences in, in the model of investigation. Because we can have rigor and we can have sound recommendations for the population. But these subtle differences are used not to... Um, not because, I suppose, in the context of a lack of rigor, but in order to mount spurious claims. Yeah. yeah so. And you can justify the claims that are made because, well, it's not like it's causing birth defects. Yeah, right? yeah so exactly. So but, no, no, no but it could gonna... be causing heart disease. So, so a good example of this is, and you were saying, you know, like medics come along and look at this. There was a meta-analysis that gets thrown around all the time by people who say, oh, we were wrong about saturated fat. Is a 2014 meta-analysis. Yeah, exactly. By a group. uh, Chowdhury was the lead author. 
And it is the it's the most hilarious example of getting it wrong, but looking at everything from a biomedical perspective. Not only did they look at 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 you know at the individual fat subtypes, the saturated, mono, or polyunsaturated, they looked at individual fatty acids. So when was the last time anyone went out and ate a meal consisting of sixteen carbon or eighteen carbon? you know, steric acid or, you know. Uh, well, look, you don't know how functional I'm making my diet. <laughs> yeah. All right. This is this is proper biohacking yeah. right here. It's like uh, the last time I ate salmon, I wasn't looking at it saying, mm, that's some 22 carbon <laughs> docosahexaenoic acid right there. So it, it was just this. Are you far, sure? Far, yeah. <laughs> it was this farcical distillation of, you know, foods into the, not even the isolated nutrient, but even their subcomponents. And, oh, we found no association. And, you know, and ultimately, you know, here's one of the things where they're saying we, we compare high versus low intake. What does that look like in any given population? So the totality of research we have for saturated fat supports higher total levels of intake, like 16, 17, 18, 19. The UK diet in the 1960s, 20% of energy from saturated fat. The Finnish, 24%. These were high rates. So now, population average around 12%. But if, you, if you're going to do some epidemiology, the control group would have to be below 10% because that's our official recommendations. And they, mm. they come from somewhere. I'm not going to get into it here. But if you want to compare heart disease rates, you need a subgroup of your cohort consuming less than 10%. And you also need a group consuming the, 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 the level that we know from the rest of the evidence to be problematic. So if you compare a group consuming 14% with a group consuming 11%, of course you're going to get a weak or null finding. And that's what we have in so many studies. Then they're compiled into a meta-analysis, which even further fudges the issue. <laughs> and an example of this, a recent publication, which again got waved around as, well, there's no association with such. The studies that lent the most statistical weight to the lack of association were Japanese cohorts where, remember I said in nutrition we compare high versus low exposure? The high, and I say this in inverted commas, bunny ears, the highest group consumption in the Japanese cohort, 17 grams a day. Not 17%, 17 grams a day. It's like nothing. People, that's two sausages. <laughs> it's one sausage. So people, people, consume, yeah. people consume three times that amount in the habitual UK population by having a breakfast roll or by having a fry up in the morning. Yeah. And in here's, the, here's yeah. the highest intake overall of and, le and let me guess they being, found they found no difference they found, between well, the they found a massive reduction in oh. risk oh, okay. comparing a high versus a low intake the low intake was five grams a day it's a teaspoon of butter so so these these primary studies end up included in this analysis look like there's this massive reduction in risk with a quote high saturated fat intake when that high intake is lower than anyone has consumed in the western world since about 1920 so which kind of makes it irrelevant for public it's an health entirely advice. irrelevant yeah. and it, it also is a classic example of why meta-analyses of of certainly prospective cohort studies in nutrition can be so misleading unless yeah. you do your real due diligence so to can make they sure. be done okay yes can, they yeah? can okay they can but be done well not, but you, my people that understand nutrition. Yes, exactly. Science. Because you would have to make sure that if you're going to do a meta-analysis on that question, that the studies included would have a relatively similar high level of intake 
in terms of what you would define as high. So yeah. we would say, let's call high over 16%. And a relevant high for the population you're advising from the results yeah. that you get. And you would also look for a control group. So you would look for, for a cohort that are con- consuming less than 10%. Um, and that would be your legitimate comparative. Uh, you also would would try, although it's become popular in recent years, to mix ethnic groups and population cohort studies. Uh, I actually don't think that's a sound premise for nutrition science. I know I know what the thinking behind it is. Oh well, you know, it gives us a a much more broader indication of different diet patterns. But fundamentally, you can't take a cohort of Japanese people eating 17 grams of saturated fat as their highest level of intake and compare it to people in Finland eating 23% of dietary energy from you know. So could you take could you take it could you take people in Finland eating 17 grams? Could you compare? Yeah, you could. Ethnicity. If you could find way? them. Yeah, yeah of course. Fine, yeah. <laughs> yeah. If you could find them, this is the point. The, the, the population differences make it difficult to find come out. So oh, certainly right. you can, the ethnicity is not the issue. It's that often diet patterns relative to a particular region correspond with a certain dietary level of intake. Mm. So an example of that, the, the Mediterranean diet, which is much vaunted at the minute and everyone looking as the reference healthy diet and, and, and people that are advocates of high-fat diets very much like to flaunt the Mediterranean diet. However, people that are advocates of high-fat diets currently also are advocates of, we were wrong about saturated fat, eat more saturated fat. But you scrutinize the Mediterranean diet. It might be high in total fat. It's still 6 to 9% saturated fat. So the Mediterranean diet's a great control for why lower rates of saturated fat <laughs> can be con- are, are still you know, positive for heart health in the context of a higher total fat diet. Mm. So there are fundamental differences between drugs and surgeries as a subject of inquiry and food as a subject of inquiry that make nutrition science unique. They make nutrition science a standalone field. And this isn't coming out of nowhere. There is an entire field there of people creating, doing research, publishing research, putting it out there and having conversations around the research. And, and what I encourage medical doctors is, you know, move away from this trust in other, you know, there's far too much reliance on, oh, well, I read a book by Dr. Jason Fung and he's a doctor, so it must be right. <laughs> there's this reliance on woo because they're doctors. You know, know that there is a field there. Have the humility to understand that there are fundamental differences that make it a much more difficult science and a much more difficult science to do well. Yeah, and start learning from people that are doing that science. Mm. Um, well, there's a reason why I'm not doing this podcast by myself. Yeah. You know, there's, there's a reason. Yeah, yeah you're welcome. Uh, not for your looks. Yeah. Uh, no, I mean, there, there's a reason why, um, despite the fact that I'm getting more interested in it, despite the fact I'm reading more around it, hmm. I am still not, I can't describe this stuff. Mm. Like, and, and, you know, I'm perfectly happy slash not so happy, but I'm going to have to swallow my ego. And you're going to talk for a lot of these kind of podcasts because this is the stuff that we need to know. This is the stuff that needs to get out there. Yeah. And I can pretend I know what I'm talking about, but the whole thing is, is that I'm learning from you. Yeah. And we, uh, as, as doctors, again, we like to think that because we're, because we're clever enough to have gone to medical school in mm-hmm. quotes, you know, that, that therefore we can just we can just learn any if we've learned a little yeah. bit about anything it's fine we're just now we're now the experts right, at it yeah, yeah. and i think we're one of the 
I think we're one of the easiest cohorts of people and professions to fall into the the mm. uh, the Dunning Kruger effect, where yeah. we we have the ego, unfortunately, as doctors, that means that we have that unbridled confidence in our own abilities. Mm. So I actually personally think it takes less, even less knowledge about something for us to gain a confidence that we know what we're talking about mm. than the general population would, and that's that's a recipe for. Disaster. Kruger. <laughs> yeah. A re- yeah. It's, a, it's a recipe for disaster yeah. in my yeah. opinion and, the, and the, 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 another thing to say on that as well that I think is, is important in terms of you know looking at research nutritionally you know in the biomedical model epidemiology is is very much tarred and that's because there's been some real scares within you know the the HRT and cardiovascular disease example in the in the 80s and early 90s is a good example of that And so there's this assumption that nutritional epidemiology is just this hocus pocus. You can't control for this. We don't know what the total. Actually, nutritional epidemiology is one of the most most complicated. I think it's a beautiful subject because it's so complicated, but it can be done well. And the track record of it in informing public health policy is actually really good. We trans fats have been removed from the food supply largely on the basis of epidemiology coupled with mechanistic studies. Mm. There was mm. no RCT to show trans fats were problematic. Our, the removal of our emphasis on total fat in a diet very much came from epidemiology looking at associations with breast cancer and total fat intake. And that was the first to consistently find no associations with total fat that made us think maybe the composition of fats is important. Mm. We, we had a historic emphasis on saturated fats but recently we've we've come more to the understanding of this balance of unsaturated to saturated. We've had so many observations in epidemiology ultimately upheld that I think we warrant confidence in nutritional epidemiology. And there's a few biomedical purists that certainly John Unitas at Stanford that have said the only research we should do in nutrition are large simple randomized control trials and i find that hilarious because one going back to the presuppositions i talked about at the start they would fail all of those presuppositions instantly Mm. two if you wanted to do a really large randomized control trial in nutrition over the long term it'll just degenerate into an observational study anyway (laughs) because it's so behavioral in nature because all of those you can't control you can't control yeah so so it's they contradict themselves by recommending these you know kind of rather radical approaches uh in nutrition that and certainly the diseases that we have facing us now which we talked about in the last episode briefly they're diseases of long latency periods they take Chronic. a while to develop. Yeah. So prospective cohort studies, which are a population observational form of research, are really important to nutrition science and actually are really informative because they're the only tool we have that can investigate long-term outcomes with diseases that have long latency periods. So they can be done really well. And the methodology is improving, particularly as technology improves. Our ability to quantify diets more objectively is getting better. Our capacity to, you know, record intake is getting a bit better. But but even at that, people often dismiss, oh, well, they used a food frequency questionnaire. You understand that food frequency questionnaire is validated in a population against weighted food diaries. It's not just a random questionnaire. There is so much validation that goes into obtaining food frequency questionnaires that are always specific to the population that you're studying. 
Um, and, and the NHANES data, the National Health and Examination Nutrition Survey data in America, I mean, it's, it's beautiful how they quantified intake over the, you know, in terms of the, the methodology employed. So nutrition is a really, really complex science. It's a hard science. It's, it's all nuances and shades of gray, which is, I think, why I fell in love with it. But, you know, know that it is a science. Um, and it's not, you know, on the one hand, you have people who dismiss it as um, unreliable, but they're the ones that are dismissing it because it doesn't accord, the current evidence base doesn't accord with their worldview. So they're saying we can't rely on, so Zoe Harkham is a classic example of that, um, who is one of the lead, I call her the, the high priestess of the, the low carb, high fat, <laughs> just eat just eat bacon and butter and, and you'll be fine. A high priestess. The high, yeah, because it's a religion. So, uh, but, but her take is we can't rely on epidemiology and we can't rely on RCTs. So it's like, oh, that's an excuse to throw science out the window and say whatever we want. Yeah, exactly. You know, you rely on the innate wisdom uh, of knowing that once upon a time... The logic of being a doctor. The logic of once upon a time... You know, our paleo forebears ran around eating ribeyes in the oh, African yes, Rift Valley. Because <laughs> they were common. Yes. So, you know, you, you and then on the other hand, then you've, you've, you've got the... How long did they live, just to clarify? <laughs> yeah, 34. And then on the other hand, then you've, you've got... So you've got the, the crowd who dismiss the whole field as unreliable because they want to mount their own perspectives and diet and health. But then you've got the, the the kind of stats or, bio, you know, biomed purists who dismiss it because, well, you know, th- 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 this wasn't controlled for that. You know, we, we don't truly have a placebo. We don't truly have ra- a double blinding. And it's like we don't have double blinding in nutrition science a lot. We can't. How, how can you blind everybody to the fact that you're giving them a food to eat <laughs> or a diet? Close to eat? your eyes and pretend yeah, yeah, and yeah. forget. Here what comes this the airplane. It's like, like feeding a baby. You know, here comes we'll the just, airplane. Because if you yeah. blended it, and that would probably be the only way, then you would yeah. ruin the whole yeah. mechanism of food yeah, digestion. Yeah, and then, exactly. Oh, so <laughs> it would only be relevant for blended yeah. food. And the, these factors are not a limitation. What they mean is that we need to evolve the manner in which we apply the model. To nutrition yeah. and we need to have some baseline trust of the people that are trained in in yeah. analyzing nutritional science yeah. and communicating it and doing it and yeah. and and just and like as there. doctors we we hope that people have a baseline level of trust in us when we critically analyze yeah, biomedical papers I just, I and we get it. frustrated when people don't yes. yet we don't give people the same uh, respect who are trained Absolutely. in, in nutritional and, and And I always make that. I think because it's food, it's coming back to this where's the harm thing, mm. right? You know, imagine I just sat down and, and, and started reading up on some drug therapy and, and formed my own conclusions about it and, and started communicating those opinions. Like, You'd probably call it an ACE inhibitor. That's I probably, probably would, <laughs> you know, or CO. There was another, I went to a, a, a lifestyle medic conference a couple of years ago and something came up about COPD. Yeah. And I was like, I had no idea. I don't know what no, COPD is. But you're not a doctor. Oh, I'm not a doctor. I'm not a nutritionist. So imagine, you know, but it, it, when I say that to people, I'm like, imagine I then went and started like, you know, talking about this stuff. It, it would be given no quarter. People mm. would be like, shut your mouth. You don't know what you're talking about. Yet we're, we're expected to excuse it. Well, when, the fo- exactly, when the shoe's on the other foot. Yeah, that's exactly what we mean by stay in your lane. Right? Yes. It's, it's 
you know, stay in your lane can be taken too far. It can. To mean that no one is allowed to have an opinion unless they've they've done a PhD in a topic. And that's not true. However, stay in your lane can be very important for this precise reason you're talking about. Exactly. Where, you know, you you start you start believing that you've su- you suddenly own the lane because you're yeah. so good yeah. and you've learned a little bit and therefore yeah. you must teach everybody the intrinsic mm. values and truths you have suddenly found <laughs> yeah. about your identity because yeah. everything is a healthism and it's yeah you know, oh, that's I, it. I I feel like I feel like you're going to continue to teach us um, the importance of knowing how to analyze biomedical science as uh, we go on yeah. throughout this throughout uh, this series of podcasts yes and, and that, um, that is as we said at the outset we want this to be a channel mm. to healthcare professionals that they can trust that they're not getting misled they're not getting hyperbole they're getting an objective critique of nutrition as it applies mm. to health and certainly as it may apply in 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 a medical context and along the way, I think a big part of that is is these nuances about the science of it and things to look for. And so, yes, yeah. I very much look forward to expanding on these points as we get to discuss different specific areas yeah. of research. That, that I, I would imagine that for a lot of people, and for me included, a lot of that sounds relatively complicated. Um, and that's perfectly fine. Yeah. Like it's a new Maybe field it of is. science, yeah, and it's exactly. you know for and you it, it seems new. simple, but it is. Yeah, so especially for us, it's a it's a new field of science that we're not. Um, we haven't grown up at, at university learning how to analyze, mm-hmm. learning how to understand. Um, and so, you know, uh, don't beat yourself up that you don't understand. I'm speaking to, to to the listeners here. Don't beat yourself up that you don't understand all this stuff after hearing Alan talk for half an hour on it, because. You know, this stuff is complicated. And the the point of this particular podcast is not that, okay, you now know how to read nutritional science, go for it. Yeah. Um, this, this, is, this is giving you some, hopefully, a baseline understanding of the... Uh, the fact that it's complicated because I don't think enough people give it enough respect that it deserves. And so when we're then going forward with these podcasts and talking about specific things like fat, like cholesterol, like carbs, that you have an understanding as to why we might be saying certain things Mm -hmm. um, and have a bit of a, just a bit of a baseline and, and, you know, feel free to keep coming back to this episode and listen to it a few times if need be. Um, I know personally I will and not just through editing it, but just in general, because this is the stuff that we assume that we know when we're reading science around nutrition Mm -hmm. Um, and it's the stuff that leads us down the wrong rabbit holes and it's the stuff that justifies um, the rhetoric that we form sometimes unknowingly incorrectly and unknowingly uh, in a problematic fashion Mm -hmm. because we think we understand what we're reading yeah Um, sometimes we do Mm -hmm. but a lot of the times I would argue with nutritional science um, if we don't have a background of learning how to analyze nutritional science, we are going to interpret it through a lens of biomedical science. And that lens will distort, mm-hmm. guaranteed will distort the conclusions that we come to. Yeah. And therefore the, the potential harm that we then have when we start acting on those conclusions that we've come to. If the whole thing is flawed from the very outset, yeah. then we need then to start no going back to square one. Yeah, so we exactly. need to we need to let go of our 
ego again i think ego is going to come up several yeah. times in these podcasts we, we need yeah. to let go of our ego of thinking that we're cleverer than the general population again speaking to doctors here that we are able to just learn this stuff in a heartbeat and it's fine mm-hmm. um and also be willing to be wrong that that there are going to be things that we've learned so far that we're going to have to backtrack on because we've learned it without a basic understanding of nutritional science and we need to we need to take a step back just like when it comes to cholesterol we spent a lot and we will go into cholesterol on a later yeah. podcast but we spent many many years as doctors believing that dietary cholesterol was incredibly harmful for our health and it led to a lot of studies being done with that as a base preposition mm-hmm. And so there are a lot of studies that get used when it comes to arguing for a plant-based diet that use studies that are inherently and intrinsically flawed from the outset because they're based on the preposition that dietary cholesterol is harmful. Um, and, you know, we and can get some of that stuff. And, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, so, and, so, and there are many, 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 many good reasons to be eating more plants. Yeah. But the lack of dietary cholesterol is not one of them. Exactly. Um, so... So yeah, let's let's leave ego at the door. Let's mm-hmm. be willing to be wrong. Yeah. Um, thank you for going through some of that stuff My and pleasure. confusing the hell out of My everybody. My favorite subject. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Well, you know, well, hopefully that's what we want people that are doing PhDs the, to have. We want them to have an interest <laughs> yeah. in this stuff they're doing, well, right? Yes, but it's all, yeah. And it's it's there. there is some stuff there that I think, you know, you, you know, re-listen to it, I guess. So certainly the presupposition stuff, but it will click. Mm-hmm. And it will click as we go into more examples of particular papers as we're addressing you know standalone topics as we go through the podcast um but i but i guess the fundamental point here is just coming back to my opening statement nutrition is a science recognize that it is recognize that it's a standalone field with its own issues complexities baseline level of knowledge that's required to contextualize results um, and, and and issues that make the biomedical model not necessarily a neat fit for it as a subject of inquiry. And, and once those things are accepted, then you can start to kind of open up to what those nuances are and start to work through them. And we're going to help you work through them. Perfect. I hope he's blown your mind and we'll see you in the next one. We will. <laughs>